Good morning. It's my honor to be able to bring a message to you again this morning. And it is also my joy and privilege to welcome you to Zion's 125th year. Marking such a milestone seems incredible to me. You see, the church I grew up in was established in the late 1960s. <clears throat> the Lutheran church that I was, um, grew up in was established in the late 1960s. But then it closed its doors in the late 1990s. Those are almost the same 30 years that Alden Johnson was the pastor here at Zion. And that's only a small piece of our history here. As a member of the Vitality team that helped direct our church along the Vitality pathway, I learned about the rich heritage of a congregation that I'm honored to be a part of today. A congregation that will now always be my home church, partly because I don't have a home church to go home to. On the Vitality team, I learned about ways that Zion has been healthy, pursuing Christ, and missional, pursuing Christ's priorities in the world. Many priorities have remained the same over the course of our history. A focus on prayer, Christian education and spiritual formation, financial independence, and music, including this beautiful organ that surrounds us here that was purchased in 1904. While these priorities have remained, many things have changed as well. These include buildings and locations, leadership and parishioners, worship style, and even language. Did you know that services were offered here at Zion in Swedish until the 1940s? I know that may seem like a long time ago, but there are some who are still worshiping with us today who can remember those services. While there have been changes along the way, one important truth remains, and that is that Zion's community of believers strive to worship in spirit and truth. Today we will explore what that means, but first, let us pray together. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. This year, I've had the honor and privilege of co-facilitating an adult education class with Scott Linden on the Gospel of John. We were not very far into that study before I knew that my next opportunity to bring you a message would be from that Gospel. I rediscovered our text for today while studying chapter 4. The class, myself included, asked what did Jesus mean when he said to worship in spirit and truth? So I want us to explore that together today. Our passage is from John 4, beginning with verse 19, and is found on page 1031 in your pew Bible. I'll be reading from the New Living Translation, so you may want to follow along, or you may want to just listen. This passage is found near the end of the conversation between Jesus and the woman at the well. Jesus was passing through Samaria on his way to Galilee when he met the woman and asked her for a drink. The woman said, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? But Jesus answered her saying, if you only knew the gift God has for you and who you are speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water, meaning the Holy Spirit. Jesus goes on to say to her, 
Anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again. But those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh, bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. And this is where we pick up the story in verse 19. Sir, the woman said, you must be a prophet. So tell me, why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship, while we Samaritans claim it is here at Mount Gerizim, where our ancestors worshipped? Jesus replied, Believe me, dear woman, the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship, while we Jews know all about him, for salvation comes through the Jews. But the time is coming, indeed it is here now, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way. For God is spirit, so those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. In this passage, Jesus tells us that we must worship in spirit and in truth. But first, we must consider what worship is. What is worship? Why do we come here each week? Why do you come here each week? And why do you come to this service? What is worship? Is it the songs or the hymns? Is it the prayers? Is it the sermon? Is it being part of a community of believers? What is worship? Can you worship alone in your car? Can you worship in a megachurch with stage lighting and professional musicians? What is worship? Is it something that happens at a particular time and in a particular place on Sunday mornings here in the sanctuary? What is worship? Is it something that happens around you or is it something that happens within you? In our text this morning, we see Jesus comparing worship on Mount Gerizim in Samaria to worship in Jerusalem. We learn three things about worship from Jesus and through the conversion of the woman at the well. First, we learn that in order to worship, we must know the object of our worship. Jesus says that the Samaritans who worshiped in Mount, on Mount Gerizim worshiped what they did not know. In this region, the people were on the margins of Judaism. They were considered half-breeds. Here, the Jews had intermarried with peoples from other cultures for centuries, and their religions intermingled too. And what resulted was the monotheism of Judaism mixed with the pagan and other religions. Although they worshiped one God, they did not know or worship the one true God. They were not worshiping in truth, because they did not know the truth about God. Jesus goes on to say that those who worshiped in Jerusalem worshiped what they did know, the one true God, and that salvation would come from the Jews. The Messiah, the savior of the world, was to be a Jew, and Jesus was a Jew. Therefore, to worship in Jerusalem was to worship in truth, because they knew the object of their worship as the one true God. In our pluralistic and postmodern, dare I say post-Christian culture, we tend to think like Samaritans when we say that all religions are worshiping the same God. 
But if we know the object of our worship as the one true God, we will understand that that is not the case. As Gary Burge writes, to have a spirituality, no matter how profound, that is not based on the truth should not be trusted. Returning to the woman at the well, we see a transformation in her as she learns the truth about Jesus. Jesus revealed himself to her as the true object of her worship, and we can see a cognitive change in the woman and the townspeople as we look at the progression of titles that she and they ascribe to Jesus. The woman starts by calling him sir. This progresses to prophet, then rabbi, then the Christ, and finally savior of the world. The woman and the townspeople who came to faith in Jesus as a result of her testimony now knew the object of their worship, Jesus the Christ, and they could engage their minds to worship in knowledge of the truth. Second, we learn that in addition to a cognitive facet to worship, there's an experiential aspect as well. While worshiping in truth engages the mind, Worshiping in spirit engages the heart. This is worship that is dynamically animated by God's Holy Spirit. The townspeople came to faith in Jesus as a result of the woman's testimony. But even more came to faith as a result of Jesus' teaching as he stayed in the town for two days. The townspeople and the woman experienced Christ and were transformed by that experience. Their hearts were now engaged in worship through the work of the Holy Spirit. As the Holy Spirit moves us to worship, so worship should move us. As Gary Burge writes, to have correct theology, to be doctrinally sound, and to be orthodox, but to have never tasted the water or to have never felt the Holy Spirit is to miss a vital component of discipleship. These Samaritans could now worship by engaging the mind and the heart to worship in spirit and in truth. Third, we learn that worship is not tied to time or place. While there are holy places, we need to look at them as pointing us to the God who is and not just to a place where he once acted. Jesus said to the woman at the well, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. In other words, a time is coming when worship will no longer be tied to holy places, but rather impacted by a holy person. Time and place will no longer matter. Worship, based on ceremony and tradition, will be replaced by worship in both spirit and truth, and no longer be bound exclusively to Jerusalem. Therefore, we can now worship the one true God in spirit and truth by engaging the heart and the mind and doing so from anywhere and at any time. So back to our original question, what is worship? Jesus tells us that worship is engaging the heart and the mind to praise and exalt the one true God in spirit and truth. The rest of what we believe worship to be, the music, the prayers, the sermon, are instruments that help us worship, but they do not define what worship is. 
There's tradition in our worship. Tradition in worship can give needed perspective and depth. Tradition has value. It connects us to our past, but can become a hindrance when tradition becomes traditionalism. When tradition ends up being a badge that is more important than our faith itself. Gary Burge tells his story. From childhood, he says, I grew up in the Swedish Lutheran community that had its roots in Chicago. I say Swedish because, as everyone seemed to know, the German Lutherans simply did not have a corner on the truth. Through Sunday school, worship services, and confirmation, I learned to be proud of this tradition. I memorized the liturgies and Luther's shorter catechism. My Catholic friends wore fashionable St. Christopher medallions, and I dutifully wore a chain inscribed on one side with Lutheran symbols, a heart and a cross, and on the other, the words, I am Lutheran. It did not occur to me that it could have said, I am a Christian. Lutheran was a subset of Christian, a superior subset. This identity worked fine until at my university, I met a graduate student in chemistry who led a Bible study sponsored by Calvary Chapel in Costa Mesa, California. It was 1972. The Jesus movement was just underway and the beach ministries of Calvary Chapel were being born. Anyone can guess what I said when pressed about my faith? I am Lutheran. Luther was my hero. I even possessed my grandfather's catechism text from, from Europe to prove it in case my medallion was insufficient. But then he asked irritating questions about Jesus and the Bible and probed whether it was possible to be religious without being a Christian. Jesus is not interested in Samaritan identities any more than he is interested in Lutheran credentials. The questions remain the same. Have you discovered living water? And do you know who supplies it? This story could be the story of my life, except, of course, that I was part of the German Lutheran subset of Christian and only knew of Swedish Lutherans through a Prairie Home Companion on National Public Radio. <laughs> it wasn't until I became actively involved in a community church in Edinburgh, Pennsylvania, that I began to realize that there was much I hadn't learned and didn't understand about living water or its source. I too wore my Lutheran badge with pride, but did it help me to worship in spirit and truth? Today, congregations struggle with the nature of worship and the perceived forms that are traditional and holy. Some want contemporary, others want traditional styles of worship. Spirit and truth, though, ought to be exhortations aimed at both parties. Neither contemporary nor traditional guarantee a genuine worship that engages the mind and the heart and the spirit of God. It's not the style of worship that matters. The mind and the heart of the person worshiping matter. Looking at Zion, for example, we have two separate services, contemporary and traditional. We separate these as though there's no tradition in the contemporary and nothing contemporary in the traditional. What does traditional even mean? or contemporary for that matter. What is now traditional was at one time contemporary, and what is now contemporary will one day be considered traditional. Tradition is the music 
and the worship of those who have gone before us. And they still have a voice. Contemporary is a fresh wind of the Holy Spirit who's still moving to inspire the new things that God is doing. Remember, though, that worship is not locked into a particular time or place, so traditional and contemporary styles both have their place in the current moment. And they do not need to be exclusive of one another. For example, as anyone who was here the week before Christmas in the first service knows, the organ, together with the band and the vocals on O Holy Night, was quite a tribute to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Speaking of the organ, some feel that certain instruments should be used in worship over and above others. Some instruments may be perceived as being holier than others. Did you know that during the Protestant Reformation, organs with stops were very contemporary? Organs were installed in churches at that time, but some called them the devil's bagpipes. Or perhaps worse yet, the Pope's bagpipes. Some organs then were systematically removed from churches and carefully recycled into materials to help the poor. In Switzerland, one organ's pipes were melted and recast to form the roof for a prison, and another's were refashioned into dinnerware for the city hospital. As we now know, the organ is a magnificent instrument that adds color and depth and fills the sanctuary with its glorious sound. Or not. I understand that some young people think it sounds like the phantom of the opera and is distracting to their worship. Personally, I love the organ, but I also love the band. I love hymns, but I grew up with them. I love to sing in the choir when I can, and I also love the newer songs. Worship styles and traditions change. We have to be willing to change along with them, but it doesn't mean we have to leave all traditions behind. Remember, what matters is not the style of worship, but the heart and the mind of the worshiper. When I was in seminary, I had the opportunity to attend a Korean church a few times. Typically, I helped with the students who met to worship downstairs in an English service, while the Korean service was being held upstairs in the sanctuary. Once or twice, I attended the Korean service instead. That service was not only held in Korean, but it was more traditional than contemporary in style. Although it was not my preferred style of worship, and was certainly not my preferred language for worship, I nevertheless couldn't help but be moved by the Holy Spirit to worship even in such a different setting. I would encourage you to seek out new and different opportunities for worship as well that might allow you to be stretched by the Holy Spirit to engage your mind and heart in new and different ways. Allow me to close with this. Just as the Samaritans and the Jews had sacred mountains that anchored their religious identities of their people, so we have traditions and preferences that anchor our religious identities. We must be careful, however, to not let our traditions or preferences become comfortable homes where religion can be embraced, but likewise where God can be avoided. 
Worship is communion with God that will not be mediated through time or place or style, but rather through the Spirit. Remember that the stress is not to be placed on the place or style of worship, but on the heart and the mind of the worshiper. Apart from the grace of God, the human heart never changes. People have always loved external religion, and unless God saves them, they always will. Allow worship to well up from within you as you practice worshiping in spirit and in truth. Today we will close our service in a style that's more typical of the other service, but at the same time allows us to worship God in spirit and truth. Avoid being distracted by the change in style, but rather embrace the genre as we worship the one true God together. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, it is our joy to come together to worship you this morning. When we do this, keep us mindful of your desire for us to worship in spirit and truth so that we, we may remain focused on you and your son, Jesus Christ, as the object of our worship and so that we may experience you in worship through the gift of your Holy Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.